Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. November 5th, 2011, in Melbourne, Australia, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 3, Krishna is the Source of All Incarnations, Text 42. Satu Samrash, Satu Samshravayamasa, Maharaja Parikshitam, Kayo Pavishtam Gangayam, Paritam Paramashibhi, the son of Vyasadeva, two, again, Samshravayam Asa, make them audible. Maharajam unto the Emperor Parikshitam of the name Parikshit Paya Upavishtam who sat until death without food or drink Gangayam on the bank of the Ganges Paritam being surrounded by great sages. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Sukadeva Goswami, the son of Vyasadeva, in his turn, delivered the Bhagavatam to the great Emperor Parikshit, who sat surrounded by sages on the bank of the Ganges, awaiting death without taking food or drink. Purport. All transcendental messages are received properly in the chain of disciplic succession. This disciplic succession is called parampara. Anybody know what the word parampara literally means? It, well, it, that's, a, that's not literal meaning, but yeah, it's translated as tradition. But the literal meaning, parampara, that's also an interpretive meaning. That very close. Generation to generation, you're very close. Lineage. Hmm? Lineage? Lineage? Yeah, also very close, but exact literal. Means one after another. One following after another. So this specific succession is called parampara. By the way, that it's important to know the literal definition because we have some people who say parampara means after a while you stop following and you stop it there. It doesn't just mean tradition. It doesn't just mean lineage. It means also one following after another. Unless therefore Bhagavatam or any other Vedic literatures are received through the Parampara system, the reception of knowledge is not bona fide. Vyasadeva delivered the message to Sukadeva Goswami and from Sukadeva Goswami, Sutta Goswami received the message. One who therefore received the message of Bhagavatam from Sutta Goswami or from his representative and not from any irrelevant interpreter. That's a nice phrase. An irrelevant interpreter. 
So I think before we move, we'll just look at that for a moment. <coughs> Is it possible to read the Shastra with zero interpretation? No. Therefore, we have the purports. The purports give us the meaning. But the question is whether or not the explanation of the meaning, which also the word interpretation means that, to explain the meaning, whether it's relevant or irrelevant. Are you just finding some imaginary meaning that's not really expanding and enlightening the essential facts of the Shastra? Or are you lighting up the Shastra? Are you taking the relevant interpretation, the relevant commentary, is one that takes the Shastra and brings it to your life. You say, oh, now I understand that. Now I can use that. Now I can do something with it. That's one of Krishna's qualities, that he's very expert at doing everything according to time, place, and circumstance. <laughs> so the illustration of that is when Krishna says, it's the Sharad season and the gopis are here, let's have a rasa dance. That's Rupa Goswami's explanation in Bhakti summary to Sindhu of how Krishna is very expert at using time, place, and circumstance. But throughout the Shastra we are told that we also have to be very expert at understanding time, place, and circumstance. First of all, you have to know what the time, place, and circumstance is. And then acting according to that time, place, and circumstance. In Bhagavatam 199, Prabhupada says, you must, you must make the message, the basics, uh, Siddhanta, Siddhanta means the end of perfection. You must make this basic, ultimate perfection relevant to time, place, and circumstance. You know, Jesus could talk about sheep, but if we talk in modern society about sheep, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Nobody here has any sheep. Anybody here have any sheep? So the examples, the explanation have to make sense to the modern audience, to the particular audience. So that is the relevant interpreter. And Prabhupada says here, we should not hear any irrelevant interpreter. So irrelevant can mean, first of all, someone who's not presenting things in line with the hearers, like we have the ninth offense to preach the glories of the holy name to the faithless. That's an irrelevant interpretation. It may be bona fide. So first kind of irrelevant is bona fide, but not appropriate. You understand? It's true, but it's not for that person at that time. Therefore, it's an offense. We may have food that is actual food. It's not make-believe food. You know, today they have make-believe food. Looks like food, tastes like food, no calories, no nourishment. So, real food... But if I give you the real food that's not good for you, then the effect is not very good. So first kind of irrelevance, that's like the austerities of speech. Anyone know the five austerities of speech, Bhagavad Gita? Okay, what? Silence. Silence, no speech. I mean, <laughs> so, well, that's one of the qualities of the Vaishnava. So you've given me the, one of the 26 qualities of the Vaishnava. They're silent, so I should stop now, sit down. <laughs> uh, but I was asking, so dip, thank you, that, that's correct. But a different reference in Bhagavad Gita where Krishna gives the austerities of speech. Truthfulness. It's got to be truthful. It's got to be true. Pleasing. That means the subject matter has to be pleasing. 
subject matter has to be pleasing. Like the man doesn't say to his wife, oh, you've gotten so old and fat, even if she has. <laughs> subject matter has to be pleasing. Okay, truthful, pleasing, beneficial. It has to help the other person and help you also. And? Two more. Not agitating to others. That means the words themselves. Like modern society, they like using language that's very disturbing. Uh, swear words. They're like the language itself is, is grating. So the language itself should be pleasing, poetic. And last is it should be based on the Vedas. So of all of those, truthful, content is pleasing, actually beneficial, the words are pleasing, the, the words themselves, and it is based on the Vedas. What is the most essential of all of those? You know? Reference to Vedas? No. Beneficial. Must be beneficial. So today we could explain the Vedic rules for performing the Shraddha ceremony. That would be truthful, it would be pleasing, it would be based on the Vedas, it would not be agitating, but it wouldn't be beneficial. So one kind of irrelevant interpretation is it's truthful, it's Vedic, it's bona fide, it's pleasing, it's not agitating, it doesn't benefit anybody. You know, you come to me for marriage counseling and I start talking about the universal form. <laughs> so this would also apply to speak people who focus just on Krishna's activities with the gopis. We're interested in Krishna's activities with the gopis. In practically every Hare Krishna temple, our main altar is dedicated to Krishna with his chief gopi. It's not that we are ignoring that Krishna has a relationship with the gopis. We have pictures on our walls here around Krishna. But if that's our whole focus, if we never talk about Kurukshetra, we never talk about Bakasura, we never talk about Madhyasoda, that's not going to benefit people. And, of course, how we talk. So that's one example of an irrelevant interpretation, although it may be fun. And the other kind of irrelevant interpreter is someone who's skewing the meaning. <laughs> They're changing the meaning. Sometimes, by the way, they do that in the name of being beneficial, interestingly enough. In the name of being relevant, they may say, well, in the name of being relevant, we have to change the message. No, you have to find which part of the message presented bona fide is going to benefit people. But not in order to benefit you, I will change the message. If I change the message, do I benefit you? No. So they change the message, and they change the message basically for their own personal benefit. <laughs> Material benefit, actually not benefit, unbeneficial. So they're hurting yourself. But they're thinking like Prophet talked about in the previous verse. I'll make some money, or I'll become very famous. People will think I'm God, or something like that. So that's also an irrelevant interpreter. So we shouldn't hear from such persons, from such persons who don't know how to apply the truth properly, or from persons who distort the truth for their own immediate material gain. Okay, that's a little side point. Going on with the purport. Emperor Friction received the information of his death in time. Nothing, does any, who here would like to receive information of their death in time? Anybody? So you just like want it to just happen in a minute with no preparation? Anybody want to have some preparation time for death? Anybody? Anybody? A few of you. You ever thought about how long you'd like to have? How much preparation time? Five years? Ten years? My mother had 15 years 
morning. 15 years of gradually de degenerative disease. And at the end, she had this really close. They were able to give her good warning. Some people, they don't get any warning, you know. Some people, they just... Elias Perkin had seven days. And he had once left his kingdom and family and sat down on the bank of the Ganges to fast until death. All great sages, rishis, philosophers, mystics, etc. went there due to his imperial position. Well, that's interesting. Because the rishis, the philosophers, the mystics, socially they're higher. But they were so interested that Perikit, who was the king, was Ksatya, that he was going to fast until death, that they all went there to offer him advice. They offered many suggestions about his immediate duty. Did they all agree? No. And at last it was settled that he would hear from Shukadeva Goswami about Lord Krishna. Thus the Bhagavatam was spoken to him. So sometimes even when we consult with saintly persons, we get differences of opinion. Yeah, this last paragraph is interesting because Prabhupada is referencing Sankaracharya. Tripad Sankaracharya, who preached Mayavada philosophy and stressed the impersonal feature of the Absolute, also recommended that one must take shelter at the lotus feet of Lord Sri Krishna, for there is no hope of gain from debating. Indirectly, Sripad Sankaracharya admitted that what he had preached in the flowery grammatical interpretations of the Vedanta Sutra cannot help one at the time of death. So he spent his life preaching something and then he said, actually what I taught you isn't going to help you. <laughs> actually we know of one, uh, he's not living anymore, but one very, very famous teacher of meditation that on several occasions he had students who asked him, how can I find the real thing? He said, you must go to A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada if you really want the real thing. He actually admitted to some of his close students, I'm, I'm only teaching a lower level. Right? At least they're honest. At the critical hour of death, one must recite the name of Govinda. Okay, now, I want to ask you, does that mean that you can't say Krishna, you can only say Govinda? Is that what that means? Can you say Krishna? You can say Shamasandara? Okay. Why should we probably say Govinda here? What's the context? Sankarta. Bajagovinda, 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 Mudamata. You fools! Talking <laughs> to the people he instructed. You fools! Don't listen to anything else I told you. Just chant Govinda, Govinda. This is the recommendation of all great transcendentalists. Shukadev Goswami had long ago stated the same truth, and at the end, that at the end one must remember Narayana. That is the essence of all spiritual activities. What is the essence of all spiritual activities? What's the essence? To remember Narayana, to remember Govinda, to remember Krishna. That's the essence. How do we know that we're engaged in spiritual activities? We're trying to remember Narayana and Krishna. In pursuance of this eternal truth, what is this? What is the eternal truth Prabhupada's talking about? What? Yes? Remembering Krishna. 
So remembering Krishna is an eternal truth. In pursuance of this eternal truth, Srimad Bhagavatam was heard by Emperor Pariksit and it was recited by the able Sukadeva Goswami. And both the speaker and the receiver of the message of Bhagavatam were duly delivered by the same medium. Interesting. So, who's being delivered by Bhagavatam? Both the? Both the speaker and the reciter. Why do I like giving Bhagavatam class? Because it brings me closer to Krishna. It delivers me. Right? Not that we're thinking, oh, I'm already delivered, I'm already elevated. No. Because I'm not delivered, therefore I'm in need of preaching. I'm in need of speaking about Krishna. That everyone becomes elevated. Satu samshravayan asha maharajan parikshitam Shukadeva Goswami, the son of Vyasadeva, in his turn delivered the Bhagavatam to the great Emperor Brikid, who sat surrounded by sages on the banks of the Ganges, awaiting death without taking food or drink. So Sukadeva Goswami is trying to find the perfection of life. He wants his life to be successful. So who here would like to have a successful life? Anybody want to have a successful life? Just a few of you. The rest of you want to be failures. <laughs> or you're playing with your iPhones or something. So we all want... The, what, what do we mean by success? You know, Even the sages weren't sure. When Maharaj Brickett was asking, you know, how, what do I do to make my life successful? Well, maybe do this, maybe do that, maybe do this, maybe do that. And ultimate success is to remember Krishna at the time of death. That is ultimate success. Ultimate success is not what we're told in modern what are we told in modern society? Money. And somebody gave my grandchildren this game called life. And how do you win the game? Do you remember how you win the game? Chatter, you remember? By retiring with the most money, yeah. That was, that was the goal of the game of life. Who retires with the most money? You know, so money, fame, right, an attractive spouse, even better, an attractive loving spouse. <laughs> At least attractive, that you can, if you can pretend it's loving and show them off. Intelligent children. I don't know if you do it in Australia, but in America, people put little bumper stickers on their cars. My daughter is on the honor roll. You know. My child won the prize or whatever. My child got into Harvard. That kind of thing. Well, what, what does your son do? Oh, he's a doctor. You know, so that's... Uh, that's the idea of success. Oh, what else is an idea of success? Oh, being very righteous. Really being a good person, giving a lot to charity, or being a good citizen, being patriotic. What are some other definitions of success? Being very famous, sometimes being famous just for being famous. We have people that they're just famous for being famous. They haven't really done anything. <laughs> you know, their father is well known or something like that. Or to be very talented at something. Be a very good singer or actor or musician or scientist to reach the pinnacle in your field. 
Or sometimes people talk about success as being in harmony with nature or finding something that you love, doing something that you really enjoy, that really satisfies you. So these are all different definitions of success. To know a lot of things, to have a lot of knowledge, to have a fancy degree from a fancy university that you can put up on your wall. I know one devotee who's constantly taking courses. Constantly. I mean, he got in a car accident, so he gets money from the government because he's disabled, so he doesn't have to work. So he's always going to courses. And one time I said to him, when are you going to do something with this? Just always another certificate, you know, another certificate. Uh, so if we're going to define what is a successful life, how do we know that life is successful? In a general way, we have to say something that gives me satisfaction and something that contributes to the benefit of others. Because if just you're satisfied and you haven't benefited anyone, then we can't really say that's a successful life. And if you've helped others but you're dissatisfied, how could that be successful? So I think even the materialists would agree that that's a good definition of a successful life. Wouldn't you say so? I've done something that said, I, I gained satisfaction, I gained fulfillment, I gained a sense of meaning, and I did something that brought other people a sense of fulfillment and a sense of meaning. I, how are we going to do that? So here, Prabhupada's talking about, you know, of course, this whole section is about Bhagavatam. In fact, we could say that this particular section of the Bhagavatam is to give us faith in the Bhagavatam. Just like before someone, of course, you didn't do it today, but often before somebody speaks, there's an introduction. You know why? Why do we introduce speakers? <sighs> Am I boring you? I don't have much way of entertaining children here, you know, puppets or something. But why do we introduce speakers? Do you know what? To stress upon the topic, introduce the topic. But why, why do we talk about this as the qualification of this speaker? Trust, trust and confidence, exactly. If you don't introduce the speaker, it usually takes people 15 to 20 minutes before they'll really start listening. They're kind of just testing, you know. Does this person know what they're talking about? <laughs> but when you have an introduction, then at least the first two minutes you have free. You understand? You've already got their trust, at least, you know, get a little bit of time that people are already trusting you. So the Bhagavatam is introducing itself. Why should you trust the Bhagavatam? I mean, so many people are going to tell you what success is. You can go to the bookstore and you can buy, become successful, become successful, in so many words. <laughs> have a fulfilling life. It's like even Morris Cricket. So many different sages and philosophers. Okay, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. So today, same thing. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. So why are we going to trust Bhagavatam? This is important because Rupa Goswami says that the qualification for starting on the path of Bhakti, Vaidhi Bhakti. Vaidhi Bhakti means Bhakti according to the Shastra. Raghunuga Bhakti means it just comes from your heart. Like between a boy and a girl, if a boy sees a girl, he just goes, oh, that one. That's like Raghunuga Bhakti. And Vaidhi Bhakti is like your parents sit you down and say, we found a nice girl for you. Like we're going to meet you. You meet her tonight and you meet her and you're sort of like, wow, mommy said she was good. I'll check it out. <laughs> so Vaidhi Bhakti is like that. You know, if you don't, you don't see Krishna go, But you hear about Krishna from the Shastra and you say, yeah, Krishna. <laughs> right, that makes sense. 
I'll trust the Shastra. So your degree of faith in the Shastra is your degree of qualification for performing Vaidhi Bhakti. Does that make sense? Like how much you trust your mother and your father is how much you're going to try to meet this girl. If just some friend sets you up and you don't trust your friend, you're not going to put the same energy into it. So if we trust, the Shastra is bona fide. Then we're going to give ourselves wholeheartedly to Vaidhi Bhakti. So this is establishing why we should trust Bhagavatam. And brought in here is the importance of hearing Bhagavatam from the right source. Not just Bhagavatam, but Bhagavatam explained properly, Bhagavatam presented properly. And with both, sadhu and guru. So we have Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. So let's look a minute at the difference between modern society's version of Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra and the real Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. Because today in Australia, everywhere, wherever you're all from, not all of you are from Australia, differently. There's someone, is she still from Botswana? So wherever you're from, there's some modern equivalent of Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. So what's the modern equivalent of Shastra? This is the way to achieve success. You've got the government laws. If you follow the laws of the government, you'll be successful. You've got the, also our philosophers, like you're the philosophers. People like Kant and Hegel, or in the modern pop philosophers. I don't know all their names. Phil somebody. You know, or this, uh, who else? Covey. You know, these are the modern philosophers. Follow this formula, you'll achieve success. And then the poets, the poets and the dramatists like Shakespeare, who are explaining why Shakespeare is so popular. Because he's explaining about human nature. He's giving examples in his stories. This is a successful person, this is not a successful person. And then empirical research. People like Dawkins and Darwin. Of course, Darwin wasn't really very empirical. It was mostly speculative. He wasn't really looking at data, interestingly. This is the non-scientific, scientific method that was... We call that actually a data-free analysis. <laughs> it was 98% speculative. But people who actually are genuine empiric philosophers who look at genuine data and analyze it and interpret it and theorists like Einstein. So we have that version of Shastra. That's what people in modern society accept as Shastra, all those things, or maybe one or more of the other. And if you want to become successful, you go to school and you study all those things thoroughly. And then we have the Bhagavatam. So what is the difference between modern ideas of Shastra and Bhagavatam? So the modern so-called the pseudo-Shastra it's coming what? From people's sense perception. What's wrong with sense perception? It's imperfect. Do you ever think you see something and you didn't really see it? You think you heard something and you actually was something else? Do you ever forget what you said a half an hour ago? Like sometimes, sometimes, I'm sure, not often, but sometimes some of you might get in arguments with somebody, right? Sometimes, once every five years or something. And Sometimes in an argument, the person said, you said that. No, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. And we don't even remember what we said. <laughs> so imperfect senses. So it's based, first of all, so we have, there was a saying in the computer world, garbage in, garbage out. 
So if it's garbage in, it's going to have garbage out. So first I start with imperfect data. And everyone knows imperfect data. Whether you're a philosopher, whether you're an empiricist, whether you're the government, whether you're a theorist, whatever you are, your inputs are all imperfect. You're making mistakes at the very first level. And we all know that. By the way, this applies to us too, <laughs> whenever we reach conclusions based on our sense perception. It's not just those people out there. <laughs> it's also us. <laughs> so then you take the sense perception and you analyze it according to logic. You use your mind. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with our logic and our mind? We can be an illusion. We forget that I have imperfect senses. I believe that what I perceive is reality. Is that true? That what my senses perceive is reality? Is that a true statement? No. Good thing to remember that there's a difference between my sense perception and actual reality. So illusion, I forget that. What other problems do I have with my logic, my analytical, interpretive abilities? Cheating. Cheating. So I'm going to skew my interpretation to favor me. And again, I'm an illusion, so I don't know I'm doing that. Sometimes I know. Sometimes I'm intentionally cheating. But generally, at least my experience, generally most people don't know they're intentionally cheating. They think that they're unbiased. Again, this applies to us also. <laughs> when I reach conclusions based on my sense perception and my interpretation, I am probably skewing my interpretation to favor myself and I'm not aware that I am doing so. And the last problem with our intelligence I can make mistakes. I can get the wrong story about the facts. Otherwise, I'd always arrest the right person. Why do they sometimes arrest the wrong person? Even eyewitness testimony, you know. Do you know that? A lot of people convicted on eyewitness testimony, like one-third, are actually innocent. Do you know that? But eyewitness testimony is so powerful. When the jury, when the jury hears, that man did it. The guy's convicted. No matter how much evidence is against it, they put so much strength on eyewitness testimony. One third are actually innocent. They get exonerated by DNA evidence and things like that. If I had time, I could tell you some interesting stories about such things. So this is the problem with the modern ideas of Shastra. They're all based on imperfect information that's analyzed in a mistaken way to bias the person analyzing it without the person's awareness that they're doing it. And again, please don't think this just applies to those foolish hogs, dogs, camels, and asses of materialists. <laughs> this also applies to any of us who are not yet seeing Krishna face to face. This means even our understanding of Shastra. <laughs> this means our understanding of why my wife didn't wash the dishes so well, or why my husband came home an hour late, or why this authority in ISKCON is really this and that. All these, we are affected by these things also. Now, what about the Bhagavatam? What is the Bhagavatam? What is the input for Bhagavatam? Hmm? Bhagavatam. Krishna. 
not some conditioned soul sense perception. It's the words of Bhagavan and the words of a great self-realized person who can see the truth. Not Vidarshinaha. They can see the truth. And they are interpreting. We are, we are not saying, otherwise it wouldn't be a purport. Purport means interpretation. But how are they interpreting? What is their interpretive process? Is their interpretive process a mistaken delusion cheating process? First of all, why is it not cheating? Why are the interpretation of the self-realized souls not cheating? They want to say it's beneficial to us and they don't have any personal agenda. They don't have any false ego to protect. They're willing to let the interpretation make them look bad. They're willing to have the truth of the Shastra, their explanation of the Shastra, make them look like a fool. They're willing to say the truth. They don't have anything to hide. They have no reason to cheat. Therefore, we have Krishna Das Kaviraj who says, I'm, I'm terrible, I'm sinful. <laughs> says that right up in the beginning. said, it's just the mercy of the Lord. He's not afraid to say that and actually say it, not like some social convention where I say, oh yes, I'm very fallen so you'll think that I'm very elevated. Not like that. <laughs> and they're not an illusion. The self-realized souls actually see the truth. And they're not making mistakes. Prabhupada defines mistakes in the 18th text of the Ishapanishad as accidental sin. Mistake does not mean uh, putting on the wrong the shoe on the wrong foot, because the gopis make lots of mistakes like that. They put their clothes on upside down and their makeup on one eye, and even Krishna makes those kind of mistakes. He sees Radharani tries to milk a bull. So we're not talking about those kind of mistakes, but we're talking about thinking that something false is something true, thinking that Maya is Krishna or Krishna is Maya making that kind of mistake. So those are the difference between the Shastra. And then we can look at what's the difference between the Sadhus, because he will really focus on what are the Sadhus, what is the Guru. And in the, in the interest of time, we'll talk about Sadhu and Guru together, though they're not exactly the same thing. Talk about them together, then differentiate a little bit. So the modern Sadhus and Gurus, who are the Sadhus? The poets, the philosophers, the scientists, the government officials, right? And your Guru is someone who's your particular teacher. So who here are the sadhus? These are again people who are seeing the truth. They've realized, they've experienced it. It's not some theory. And they're speaking the truth just for their own happiness and everyone else's happiness. Just to please Krishna. Just for their own purification, everyone else's purification. Not to make money, not to become famous, I mean, they might get money or they might become famous, but they don't care about that. It's not, that's not what's important. It's not what's driving them. However, Krishna takes care of them. Krishna takes care of them. And particularly the guru, Prabhupada talks about coming in parampara. Now this we could speak about at length, what you say, how much time to spend on this. So the, the essential idea of coming in parampara is you're not making it up yourself. 
So we have, we're not going to name specific names, but we have a number of religious systems in the world today, quite a number actually, where the head of that religion, the founder of that religion, claims to have made up the religious system themselves. They actually say, I have created a new religion. Now sometimes they say things like, you know, I went out and meditated, and in my meditation I had some vision, or I had some visitation from some higher being, and that's the source of the Shastra I'm writing, and that's the source of the instruction that I'm giving. I can think of at least one major world religion that's in that category, and a number of other, uh, one minor religion, and a number of other religious sects. Uh, smaller religious groups. They're not so dominant in the world. Where the founder says, okay, I, I found something new. And even one of these groups, the founder said that in order to stop the fighting between religions, I've taken the best from each religion and combined them into a new one. Uh, that particular religion, they're very beautiful temples, by the way. There, uh, many people visit their temples just for the archaeological beauty of the buildings. And they're one of these, you know, oneness, um, everyone finds their own way kind of people. So, parampara means you don't do that. So, Supermaraj talked about how once when he was distributing Prabhupada's books, he met some boy who said, oh, I already have my master. And so, Supermaraj said, oh, who is your master's master? He said, my master's master. Well, I don't think he has one. He said, so that means you think you're God. I'm a master without any master, then I'm God. That's Krishna. It's Sarvakaranakaranam. He's the ultimate. He's the ultimate Ishwar. He's the ultimate Karnam. And the first time I personally heard Srila Prabhupada speak, he was making that point. Everyone is a little bit of an Ishwar. Each of us has something we control, correct? At least you control a little box of clothes or your little place on the shelf if you're a brahmachari. You know, there was a time in this kind when, at least in some places, the brahmacharis didn't even have that much control. They had a big basket of clothes, and everybody just threw their clothes in the basket, and you just kind of pulled out something to wear. I don't know if the women ever did that. <laughs> Although we all just used to wear saffron, identical saffron saris. Big saris, big, heavy polyester, 25 piece. We could have exchanged clothes. They were all identical. Unless you got married, then you wore plain white. Or plain yellow. So anyway, if you have a little area of control, you know, your little room on the shelf, or your little room, or you're trying to control your spouse, probably unsuccessfully. <laughs> then you think, I'll have a kid, I'll be able to, that'll, that'll be somebody I can control, you know, and then you learn another lesson about that. <laughs> you try to control your... Kid or modern society, they give up on trying to control a spouse or a kid, they try to control a dog. <laughs> right? Or you try to control your electronics or something. <coughs> but the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate controller is Krishna. So parampara means I recognize I'm a servant of a servant of a servant of a servant. I'm not making up knowledge. I'm not going to say, okay, I found my own medical college. Well, excuse me, sir, where's your medical degree from? Who did you learn from? So parampara means I have heard from the authorities who's heard from the authorities who's heard from the authorities and I acknowledge that Krishna is the master. The beginning of every parampara is Krishna. And ultimately, really interesting quote, Prabhupada 
said 19, I think 69. He said, Guru is not a particular man, Guru is a principle. He said, Guru means truth. And whoever is, and what is that truth? He said, Samsaradavanavabhiloka. Whoever is presenting that truth, that person is Guru. So ultimately, Guru is Lord Nityananda, Lord Balaram. It's Krishna. The ultimate Guru is Krishna. Isvara Sabhavitana Mridesha Arjuna Chastiti. Matasvachidyana Vapalhanuta. It's Krishna. But one who appears, because we can't immediately hear Krishna very well, a lot of static of our, not ecstatic, unfortunately, a lot of static of the Anartas. So there's an external manifestation. And to whatever extent the person is transparent, to whatever extent Krishna can speak through that person in such a way that is perfect for us and relevant for us, to that extent such a person is guru. Uh, so that is guru. A guru is somebody, Prabhupada says, you should surrender to a guru. What kind of guru? Strokriyam Brahmanistam. Strokriyam, who has heard. Who's not making something up. Who's not twisting something for their own purposes. And Brahmanishtam, who's actually fixed in the truth, or as Krishna says, Tattvadarshina, who sees the truth. It's not theory. It's not just some idea. They're not just a professor. They could be a professor. We don't say, if you're a professor, you can't be a devotee. <laughs> you can't be a guru. But their qualification is not being, not being a Sanskrit scholar. Again, you're allowed to be a Sanskrit scholar if you're a guru. But just being a Sanskrit scholar is not the qualification. In fact, you can be illiterate. In fact, you can be an animal. You can actually be an animal. Like Hanuman or Jatayu. And be Guru. So, Strotriyam Brahmanishtha. That is the person who can take the Shastra and know how to apply it to me. And to apply it to this time, place, and circumstance. And who can reveal how Krishna is there in the Bhagavatam. Actually, Bhagavatam is the same as Krishna. And, and open, this is how to be successful. <laughs> Here is the guidebook for success. Here is the guidebook by which you will find personal fulfillment and be able to contribute to the fulfillment of others. And this is how you can personally use this guidebook. And the sadhus are as qualified as the guru, but we distinguish sadhu and guru. The sadhu gives you, of course, guru does this also, but the sadhu may not be giving you personal instruction. Maybe, may not be. But the sadhu provides an example of somebody who's followed the shastra under the guidance of guru and attained success. They're the exemplars. Yadyadatarachi states us what the great men do come and put people will follow. You'll see, oh, this is how this person attained success. So we say you follow in the footsteps of the previous acharya, as Rupa Goswami gives us one of the six factors leading to success. So you have to have somebody to follow. Krishna also says to Arjuna, many, many people in the past, they have done this process. So we just say, think of Krishna. Like here we're learning, what is the essence? Prabhupada puts it so nice. That is the essence of all spiritual activities, always thinking of Krishna. So what does that mean, always thinking of Krishna? I mean, I might think, I've seen this actually, but I might think that that, make, that means I make a device out of some wire. I've actually seen people, I'm really, I'm not making this up. I make some device out of some wire, I hang over my head, and in front of me there's a little picture of Krishna, and I walk around like that. <laughs> so I might think that's what it means, always thinking of Krishna. Or I might think always thinking of Krishna means 
that I say, you're a hog, dog, camel, and ass, and you're this and you're that, and I'm always thinking of Krishna. I might think it means that. I might think it means some sort of fanatic, self-righteous, arrogant person who's always beating other people over the head with how much they're thinking of Krishna. I mean, what does it mean to always think of Krishna? Or I might think, like Arjuna thought, that it means I, I give up all of my duties. I drop out of school, I quit my job, I abandon my spouse and kids, I go to the forest, I sit on deer skin, I chant om and I eat some berries. Right? I might think that that's what it means. Like, what does it mean to always think of Krishna? <coughs> so therefore we have the sadhus. And what's nice about the sadhus is they give us so many different examples. I mean, Bhakti Sanatha Saraswati gave us an example of the Nastiki Brahmachari. Bhakti Vinodakir gave us an example of really blissful, loving householder life. Prabhupada gave us an example of a difficult householder life. Someone like Maharaj Parikas gives us an example of a government official, an emperor. And there's so many different examples. Examples of sadhus who are men, who are women, who are grahastas, who are vanaprastas, who are sannyasis, who are brahmacharis, who are illiterate, who are scholarly, who are old, who are young, who got stuck in an animal body like Gajendra, who were rich like Yudhisthira, who were poor like Sadhana, who were very talented, who were not so talented. Or like Hanuman, he goes to get the mountain and he's like, I don't know what plant to get. I'm just a monkey. Prabhupada says, says he wasn't so learned, he was a monkey. He was a monkey, actually. <laughs> but he said, well, at least I'm strong. <laughs> so you may be a monkey. One of Prabhupada's purports, he talks about that, how, you know, Ravana had all this sophisticated weaponry and the monkeys, they just had some logs and stones. And he said, isn't that purport so funny? He said, Rama Lakshman shot a few arrows. And he compares that to the Krishna consciousness movement. I mean, what do we have? Anybody here have millions of dollars? If you do, we can talk later about my next publishing project. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, we don't have the vast wealth of the materialistic society and their whole communications network and media network and, you know, what are we? That, that film Avatar, you know, some 3D, IMAX, how many millions of that? Could you imagine if we could make a film like that on the Mahabharata? Wow. Universal form and... Oh, we don't have that. Oh, we're just like monkeys fighting against Ravana. So anyway, we have all these examples. Whether we're like a monkey fighting against Ravana, whether we're a government official like Draupadi or Maharaj Yudhisthira, whether we're just a simple village girl like the gopis, whether you have your own little business like that fruit seller who came to Krishna, or whatever you are. There's some example. And there's a whole range of examples that the sadhu gives. You can think about Krishna like this. You can think about Krishna like that. You can think about Krishna like this. You can think about Krishna like that. Here's a model, here's another model, here's another model, here's another model. Because, you know, we're each individuals. And exactly the way I think about Krishna, it's not going to be exactly the way you think about Krishna, you think about Krishna, you think about Krishna. We're, this is not an impersonal cookie-cutter society. It's an individual, personal society. 
But the essence is to think about Krishna. That brings success. Why does that bring success? Savaikun samparo dharma yato bhakti rahotate. Ahoituki apritiata. Yad yatma suprasiditi. Or Krishna says, Susyanti chagamanticha. It gives you satisfaction and happiness. That's what we want in all of our efforts for success, isn't it? The reason that we get money and the reason we try to get the beautiful loving spouse and the intelligent children and the fame and the righteous good works and the you know position and the company, whatever it is. Or growing our own organic food or <laughs> finding just the right occupation. We want this satisfaction. That can be found only when we're internally and externally, but internally, primarily connected with Krishna. Just externally connecting with Krishna will not ultimately satisfy the purpose of all of our externals. You know, so he's carrying the flower vases. That's an external. But what's he thinking about? That's the question. My Prabhupada was asked, is it faster if you live in the temple? He said, that depends on whether or not your mind is on another subject matter. And the essence is manmana bhava madbhakto, rajadi manmanasku. Always think of me. The most often quoted verse is 7-1. Become attached to me. Get your mind attached to me. Our aim is Raganuga Bhakti. Our aim is to look at Krishna and go, yes. <laughs> Our aim is not even to say, yes, Krishna, because Bhagavatam says, yes, Krishna, but just because Krishna is Krishna is Krishna is wonderful. And that we start to read the Bhagavatam not as a way to convince ourselves to fall in love with Krishna, but as a way to relish the love we already have for Krishna. So that's the essence of satisfaction. Why the essence of satisfaction? Because that's who I am. That's who I am. If part of success is finding out who I really am and being in the right place for me, then who I really am is a soul. You can try being who you really are. I'm going to try to be a real man or a real woman or a real this or a real that. It's not satisfying, is it? If it's not for Krishna, you can be the perfect wife and mother and grandmother. And I tell you, if you're not doing it for Krishna, you're not going to be satisfied. And then you're going to say, well, maybe I should go become, you know, a lawyer. And you do that, you still won't be satisfied. You can be the perfect brahmachari. If you're not doing it for Krishna, you won't be satisfied. Or I'm going to be the perfect Indian, or the perfect Botswanan, whatever it is, the perfect American, <coughs> which most other people wouldn't like. <laughs> but if I'm not for doing it for, it's not, it's not going to satisfy me. You can try, life after life after life after life, if we want. But the way to satisfy me is to become the perfect me. The real me. The soul. The part of Krishna. So Bhagavatam and the sadhus and Guru, they teach how to find me. Chaita Darpinamarjanam. How to find, who am I? Like Rupan Sanatana said, everybody praises us, but well, I don't even know who I am. So that's the first reason it satisfies. I find out who I am. Not in theory. Not in theory. Yes, I'm a soul. I have learned this philosophy from the Hare Krishna movement. I am not this body. <laughs> to see it. To realize it. To experience it. Therefore, Krishna says in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, 
to relish and rejoice in the self. One whose happiness isn't within. Wow, who am I? I'm a soul. Then what do I do as a soul? <laughs> I have a relationship with Krishna. Not who am I? I'm an Australian, I'm an Indian, I'm a Chinese, and my therefore my relationship is to serve my country, or I'm a husband and a father, and my relationship is to serve my family. I'm a soul, my relationship is to serve Krishna. Of course, that doesn't mean you walk away from your country and your family, but it means you do it for a different reason. You do it to please Krishna, not exactly to please your family and your country. And then what's the other reason it's satisfying? Because guess what the activities of a soul are? They are to expand Krishna's happiness, to facilitate the expansion of Krishna's happiness. That's the essential understanding of what is the duty of a soul. And what is the expansion of Krishna's happiness? That so many more jivas realize they are a soul and connect with him. He wants everyone to come to the party. You ever have a party and you wanted lots of people to come? Sometimes we have a party we want it very quiet and private. But have you ever had a party where you really wanted a lot of people to come? If a lot of people don't come, you're kind of disappointed. Only 20 people showed up. We prepared 500 invitations, you know, 500 places for some, and only 20 people showed up. So Krishna wants a party for every living entity. Please, Prabhupada says purport to one song that the purpose of this Krishna consciousness movement is to join the pleasure dance of Krishna. Please don't think all the seats are already taken. Krishna wants everyone to come and dance with him and play with him. So that gives us success in life. We may also be rich or we may also have a degree from Oxford and we may have a beautiful loving spouse and we may have children on the honor roll and we may have a big position in our career. That's okay. We're not saying don't have those things. We're not saying go to the Himalayas and sit in the cave. We're not saying that. We're saying do all those things for Krishna. Right after the essence of this purport is right. Just think of Krishna at the time of death. How will you do that? Prabhupada says in the purport to 866, a cumulative effect. What else does he say? To be transcendentally absorbed in Krishna's service. That whatever I'm doing, Krishna, I'm doing this for you. Krishna, I'm cooking this nice food for my husband, so you'll be happy. Maybe my husband will be happy, maybe he won't. Can you guarantee if you cook nicely for your husband, he'll always be happy? No. And you cook the same thing. One day he may be happy with it, one day not. That's what it is. Will your wife always be happy with you? Right? Not always. I, Sorry. You can read the best relationship book. I'm not saying don't read them. But... <laughs> Even if you read them, some days your wife will not be happy with you. Even you did everything. Page 376. I said this, and I said this exactly like that. And she said, I don't me. And she goes to her room. So, you know, why are you trying to be a good husband? So Krishna will smile on you. You're not meditating on your wife anymore. Actually, you'll be a better husband. Because you're being a good husband won't be dependent on whether your wife is like, oh, you won't, you won't be, you won't say, oh, she just complains anyway, why bother? <laughs> I'm thinking, is Krishna smiling? Krishna's going to smile at you for doing your best. Why does he say you have a right to perform your prescribed duties, but you're not entitled to the fruits of action? 
Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activity. Never be attached to not doing your duty. I'm thinking, is Krishna smiling on me? My wife might smile on me. She may not smile on me. But I'm trying to get my wife to smile, and Krishna's going to be happy with that. I'm trying to make my boss happy. Krishna will be happy with that. That the essence of what I'm doing, therefore, right after Yam Yam Bhakti Swambaram, Krishna doesn't say, okay, give up everything and go to the forest and just stick a picture of Krishna on a wire thing in front of you. <laughs> what does he say after that? He says, Mam Anusmaram Yudya Cha. Fight. And think of me. Fight. Fight. Of all the things to tell somebody to do, to fight. And not just to fight, <laughs> to kill your guru, even. Fight. How are you going to think about Krishna? And you've got to be watching and aiming your arrows and making sure nobody hits you. I mean, it's a little mentally engaging. I haven't tried it, not in this life anyway, but I would imagine that it's very mentally engaging. And Krishna didn't say, give up everything externally. He said, do it for me. So that's the essence of Bhagavatam, that we see one person after another after another in different circumstances appearing to be expert in the world generally. We still find some avadutas like Rishabdev and but Mamanusram Yuticha. They're getting attached to Krishna. They are getting attached to Krishna. They are getting it. While I'm taking care of my child, am I getting attached to my child or to Krishna? If I'm attached to Krishna, I'll take better care of my child. Actually, Prabhupada personally told my father that. So, Janu's father was on my lap. He was like one and a half. Not Janu, Janu's father. And we were sitting with Srila Prabhupada. And Prabhupada said, just like this woman is loving her child without any expectation of return, and that way you should love Krishna. And my father said, will loving her child help her to love Krishna? Prabhupada said, no. He said, but loving Krishna will help her to love her child. So therefore, the devotee becomes even materially successful. <coughs> Maybe not in numbers in your bank account, but even on the material level, one will experience full satisfaction. When you have $1,000, you have $10. You should not think that if I focus on Bhagavatam and the real sadhus and the real guru instead of the modern version of guru, sadhu, and shastra, I'm going to lose something. Arjuna was afraid of that too, so we shouldn't be ashamed if we have that doubt. He said, suppose I take this process and I fail, I'll have, not, I'll have given up the material. Krishna says, no. So this is the, the actual blueprint for success, and with faith in the Bhagavatam, we should follow his instructions. And we're going to go the next two days. Also, wonderful. This is especially text 44, which we'll speak on Monday, Krishna And this such famous verse, tomorrow, text 43, this Bhagavad Purana is as brilliant as the sun has arisen just after the departure of Lord Krishna to his own abode, accompanied by religion, knowledge, etc. This is tomorrow's verse. Persons who have lost their vision due to the dense darkness of ignorance in the age of poverty, should their light be misbrought. When I saw that I was going to get to speak on this verse, I was so you have your it's your program that your class goes so late so I'm not going to apologize <laughs> but I guess it's Saturday so it's not too bad although some of you are struggling to get rested and look at your watches so questions, comments, additions, subtractions corrections, chastisements yes that what? Modus, mode of goodness brings happiness. <coughs> it also says it's precaution from a nominee. So in 
Yes, it's illuminating. Yes. Yes. Some sense of happiness yeah, and, and, and illumination. Sense of yes. So, how, what's the missing factor? How do we extend that further to bring? They're just not close enough. Yeah. So, this is nicely explained in the Bhagavatam, I believe, seventh canto, where it's asked, Why does Krishna appear to be partial? Why does it seem that he favors Prichanaya Sadhanam Vinashaya Tadushtrakam? Why does he tend to favor the sadhus and kill the demons? Why isn't he equal? And the answer is he is equal, but the material world is set up to favor the mode of goodness. Now if you say, well, that's not fair. It's something like if you walk, try to walk through the wall or you try to walk through the door. So the architect of the building did not engineer the building that some people would suffer and some people would be happy. It wasn't that he said, well, I'm going to make this wall so that it really hurts people when they walk into it. <coughs> that wasn't his mentality. His mentality was, I want to facilitate different things and to facilitate different things and then you have to use them properly. Use the wall for hanging pictures and use the door for going through. So people in the mode of goodness, they're standing in the doorway. That's what they're doing. And they're getting some breeze and some sunshine. And what they have to do now is walk through the door. Sattva sattva also means truth. So naturally, because the truth is joyful... (coughs) Because Krishna is joyful, he's an andamayabhyasat, because he's atmaram, he's self-satisfied, he's full of satisfaction and bliss. So, and he is the truth, paramsattva, right? Paramsattvam dimahi. Because he's completely true. So the more what I'm doing is true, the happier and more satisfied I am. And the more what I'm doing is false, the unhappier and less satisfied I am. I always give the example of the difference between my drinking the water and my trying to eat the cup. If I drink the water, I'm happy and satisfied. If I eat the cup, I'm miserable. And that's not the fault of the cup manufacturer or whatever. They didn't design it for me to eat. So people in the mode of goodness, what what happens, you can think of it like on a window. Say you can have a curtain that you can't see through. You can have one of those bathroom windows that are like translucent. And then you can have a clear window that's transparent. But Sudhasattva, there's no window at all. So the mode of ignorance, you're, you're not seeing truth at all. You're, you're, you see things backwards. You're in falsity. You're trying to enjoy something that's not enjoyable for you. Like cups are not enjoyable. They're not in, eating them anyway. Eating a cup is not an enjoyable object for a human body. <coughs> Although there was someone in the Guinness Book of World Records who ate an airplane bit by bit. You know, walls are not the way of egress and ingress to a room. They're just not. It's false. If I think the wall is the way out, that's false. So the more you do something false, the more you suffer. And the closer you come to truth, the more that you're happy. When you're fully in truth, you're fully happy. So yeah, they're, they're hovering. They're hovering. And it's still on the platform of the body and mind is the problem with material sattva gun. And I don't want to get into too much, but the, you know, there's two levels of samadhi. One level of samadhi is on the mind, one level of samadhi is on the soul. So you can achieve samadhi on the platform of mind, which is amazing <laughs> compared to anything else materially, but it's still not the ultimate reality. 
there's still some level of falsity because I'm not the mind. So I'm standing in the sunlight of truth, but I'm, I'm still experiencing as if on the body and the mind. So there's still, still something false in my consciousness. And therefore, my happiness cannot be anandam bhudivardhanam, it can't be unlimited. So in one sense, I would say this as quickly as possible, in one sense, people who first come to the mode of goodness and then come to Krishna consciousness have an advantage. But actually, Krishna does not recommend that path. Twelve, this is twelfth chapter. Twelfth chapter is: should you first come to the mode of goodness, should you, without, or actually first come to liberation, without Krishna consciousness, and then become Krishna conscious, or should you just start trying to become Krishna conscious immediately? And the answer is: you should start trying to become Krishna conscious immediately, because the step-by-step process where you first become liberated without Krishna and then try to get Krishna is more difficult. And we actually see that people who are very much situated in this mode of goodness, sometimes it's difficult, more difficult for them to make the transition, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Although, in another sense, they're more qualified than the person who's at a lower stage of bhakti, in, in another sense. But still, they, they become qualified in such a way that it's hard for them to transition. It's nice to explain in Bhagavad Gita 12.5. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's an interesting kind of binding. Conditioned by happiness. You become conditioned by your happiness. Mm. Yes. Basically, you think <coughs> you've already achieved perfection. Why should you go on? <coughs> now, whereas the other person knows they haven't yet achieved perfection, there's many reasons why the other is actually a superior path. <coughs> However, if the person who is at that level takes to Krishna consciousness, they are immediately ahead of the other person. They are on the level of the four types. They're on the level of the jnani. Which Krishna says, such a such a beginner is is like my is not myself. That the, the devotee is myself, but such a person is like my very self and is the most dear to me. So when such a person takes to Krishna consciousness, they immediately surpass Bhagavad Gita twelve eight. They go right to Bhagavad Gita twelve nine, whereas other persons have to start with twelve eight. But still, we don't recommend that path. Once you found out about Krishna, go right into twelve eight. Don't don't take the yoga road. Don't don't do the other. Trying to trying to give you this much of an answer. Did that answer your question? Is that all right? Anything else? Yes. The Ganis, those who are already basically liberated. How can you come from pure devotion? Then you're already a pure devotion. You're saying, where does he mention that perfect people come to me to become perfect? Yes. Okay. So people coming, starting Krishna consciousness in the material world. He's talking about people who are, are who are not yet Krishna conscious. That that verse is about you're not yet Krishna conscious. So what, what's your impetus in the beginning? If you say my impetus is already prema, then you're not at the beginning. We're talking about four kinds of beginners. If your impetus is if you immediately experience prema, 
I mean, that could happen. It would be very unusual. That happened to the son of Maharaj Pachapurudra. <coughs> he didn't go to see Mahaprabhu out of wanting material happiness, getting, wanting to get rid of material distress, out of curiosity or because he was already liberated. He came because his father told him to. That was the arrangement made. And Maharaj Pachapurudra said to his son, go and see Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Out of obedience to his father, it wasn't, he wasn't personally looking for anything. And as soon as Mahaprabhu embraced him, he was experiencing pain. So, that's an example of someone who doesn't fit into those four categories. That immediately, immediately he became the highest level devotee. But that's very unusual. So generally, one is going step by step, and one's initial impetus is going to be, for the majority of people, one of three things. Either you're curious, is there a God, who am I, what's the purpose of life, um, what's religion, what's this about, who are those interesting people, what's that interesting food, what's that nice thing, just curiosity. One is like you're suffering, you know, you're in debt, you're sick, your wife ran off with your best friend, you lost your job, you're miserable, and you're just like, ah, oh, I want salvation, I want liberation, I want to be free from material distress. Or even the higher level of that is I want purification. Or someone I want to be happy. You know, most religionists in the world are the I want to be happy and I want salvation. The 99% of religious people. Or if I worship God, you know, I remember seeing in London 